Welcome to The Week on Radio with me, Erin Wilson. And me, Harry Holmes. We're here to discuss the week's biggest news stories and offer our thoughts on the best to the worst of what the world has to offer. So, hello and welcome to the next episode of The Week on Radio. Um, Our first story today is, I've just titled it Liz Truss. There's a lot of different facets to the story on Liz Truss. A lot more to the story. There's a lot more. So when I made these notes on Sunday, um, it was going to be we were going to chat about the sacking of Quasi Quarting. But obviously that is now old news because plenty more has happened since then. So um, obviously yesterday we had um, Jeremy Hunt uh, in the House of Commons who basically ripped up the economic policies that were announced three weeks ago. Um, he brought forward an emergency meeting that was going to be announced, where he was going to n- announce the next sort of economic policies at the end of the month. But obviously, given the turmoil, chaos, um, choose whatever word is suitable, obviously brought it forward. So we've had a load um, more updates um, yesterday of what the economic policy now looks like, and there's not much left of what Liz Truss and Quasi Quarting originally announced. Liz Truss also spoke to Chris Mason last night. Um, obviously, there was a lot of talk yesterday about where she was. She was quite absent in the Commons yesterday. Literally absent. Literally absent. She made a very brief appearance, um, but for the most part she was, well, it was quoted that she was hiding under a desk at one point. Um, But yeah, so she spoke to Chris Mason last night. She said she will lead the party into the next election, but she did want to apologise for her part in in the chaos that's been caused so far and accept responsibility and, and say sorry as well. Um, so really, the the budget, the economic policies, Jeremy Hunt was the main story of yesterday, um, and there's lots of different facets to this. But yeah, there what, is, what yeah, do we think? Just, uh, just to give an outline of this, the U-turns because it's quite hard to keep track of. It is, yeah, which is why we've got so <laughs> this little note here. Three things have been kept from the original yeah. mini budget. That is bankers' bonuses. Um, oh, actually, there's four things. Mm. There's bankers' bonuses have been kept because Jeremy Hunt came out and said. The more money they earn, the more tax they will pay. Um, first-time buyers won't pay any duty on properties of value up to 425000 mm-hmm. There's no stamp duty on uh, properties up to 250000 and national insurance will be reversed, so the rise that Rishi Sunak put in place, 1.25%, yeah. is going to be reversed. But... A lot more has been scrapped. Yeah. So obviously the highest rate of income tax got scrapped last week mm-hmm. by Kwasi Kwarteng. Um, the plan to go from 45% to 40% was scrapped. Uh, now corporation tax, that was meant to rise from 19% to 25%. Mm-hmm. Then they scrapped, also been it, scrapped it. And now they are rising it again. Yeah. Um, and then on top of that, you've got income tax, which it was going to be cut from 20p to 19p. It's staying at 20p. That's being scrapped. They were going to freeze rates on alcohol duty, also scrapped. And they were going to do tax-free shopping for non-UK visitors to do with VAT, also scrapped. Yeah. So Jeremy Hunt really has just ripped... Well, as you can see, there's only four bits left there. He's just completely ripped up the economic policy. So I'm not even surprised that Liz Trust didn't want to show her face yesterday. Um, I mean, yeah, the word we keep saying is just chaos. I mean, I think even it, it's, it is chaotic, which I think some people can see why Jeremy Hunt has been brought in. I think Jeremy Hunt to some people is some sort of calm mediator kind of presence. Um, that might be a little bit debatable. But yeah, I think people see him as someone who's going to calm the waters a little bit, bring some control to the situation, even though Liz Trust 
is you know she is still the prime minister for now um i think it is very much seen as he is the one maybe leading the show from now on he's obviously now a very powerful position uh he's been in the cabinet for the last nine years i think so he's got plenty of experience bringing with him um but yeah i think he is the one people think is gonna calm again the chaos that we're in at the moment yeah well these cuts are just more fiscally sustainable Mm. but what i think about it is that there's danger of swinging too far in the other direction um so they've also announced with the energy crisis they had planned two years of support yeah now it's going to be reviewed after six months six months which was something labor was arguing for as well Mm. because putting in stone that you're going to give support for two years when something might change is it doesn't give confidence to the markets because it's a big expenditure um so just to feel like there's danger of swinging back too far the other way because people do still need energy help corporations do need reassurance and Mm -hmm. they do need some stimulation the economy needs stimulating it needs to look more attractive for investment we do need growth which is what yeah Liz Truss which Liz is Truss what she keeps on about. going on about yeah um but it looks because Jeremy Hunt actually came out and said this might be just the start there's going to be more because there's going to mm. have to be spending cuts public spending cuts yep. at a time when we actually need investment and to raise public spending so what I fear we're going to be seeing is just a return to austerity I think I think that's what a lot of people have got on their minds. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And again, going back to the energy help, I think, again, it's it's a case of too much too soon, which I think we can see with all these economic policies, that's just been the case. If, as you say, they would have said originally, it's six months help and we'll review, they wouldn't have promised the two years. I think it would have been much more appealing because you're not promising people those two years. People see two years, it gives them a bit of a buffer, a bit of breathing space. But now they they don't have that. I think what the, the Tories and Liz Truss are just showing over and over in the past, the fact that we're talking about this in a matter of days and weeks is, is crazy, but they're just showing that I think they're just a bit close. It's, it's a shot in the dark, really, with all these policies, and they just can't be trusted. They'll say one thing, and then within 24 hours, as we saw with Quasi Quarting, yeah. 24 hours before he was sacked, he said, I'm not going anywhere, and then he came back from Washington and he didn't have a job. Yeah. So it... it there's no sense of trust. There's no faith. That's the word I'm looking for uh, in the Tories right now. There isn't. And just on to stick with Quarteng, even though he is old news, yeah. <laughs> quite literally old news. Um, him and Truss are. They have. I've put in my notes here. They're ideological soulmates. Mm. They they share the same ideology. Um, that plan for growth was not Quarteng's plan. That was Truss and Quarteng's exactly. plan. Exactly. Um, they they have the same economic beliefs, they're close friends personally as well. Um, so just kind of any idea that it was Quarteng's sword to fall on, I find just a little bit ridiculous because mm. trust was every bit a big part in what what that original mini budget set out. Yeah. Um, there's no way she didn't green light that package. So. And, and if she didn't know that he was going to do it, then what kind of leader is that? Well, yeah, exactly. I think, yeah, you can definitely say it's joint responsibility. And I think the only reason Quartet's gone is because she needs to do something else big. First of all, you had the mini budget that caused chaos. She had to do something else. To, it's just a case of covering her own it back. Is, yeah. And unfortunately, he was the collateral damage. Yeah, but I, I saw a tweet which really made me laugh, um, saying that, Trust sacking Quarteng is like a ventriloquist sacking the dummy for not liking what it said, <laughs> <laughs> which did tickle me a little bit. Um, but just on, on on these U-turns, it's 
it seems to be something that Liz Truss has done in all her career. So when she became Prime Minister, I'm sure you will have seen the clips mm. of her talking about monarchy. Yeah. She, when she was younger, she was a campaigner for abolishing the monarchy. Oh, yeah. Now she's Prime Minister. She is bowing to King Charles. Mm. Um, she, in, in the EU referendum on Brexit, she voted Remain and then has later come out that actually she regrets voting Remain and should have voted Leave. Oh, um, so it seems like her, posi- her position as Prime Minister is as flimsy as her opinion tends to be because she swings one way and then when she realises that's not going to be the way that's going to win, she abandons ship and joins the winning side. So essentially she's just a people pleaser. She is, yeah. She's got no... She, she doesn't stick by her views and beliefs. She's willing to change and just to stay where she is. Um, but any other... Any other prime minister with a scan—not call it a scandal. It's not a scandal, but with a chaos and a yeah. mistake as big as the mini budget, they would be gone. There's just no doubt about it. But this is, as we've seen with Boris Johnson mm. and now Truss, it's not usual times in politics. It, it's not. Again, I think the word unprecedented has sort of lost its meaning in the past few years. But again, we're in again another unprecedented time with how bad she's just tanked within five, six weeks. Um, and again, I think going back to what you've just said with how sort of unprecedented and how poor she is as, a, I'd say, a politician and a leader now, I think the only reason she's still hanging on by a very, very thin thread is A, because, I mean, she's only been in office for a few weeks, but also the Tory party can't think of someone else to rally around. There's been names, you know, Penny Mordaunt, um Rishi Sunak, obviously, as well, and people are maybe saying now Jeremy Hunt might be in in that position as well. But she's she's there because there's no alternative at the moment, yeah, and that's why sticking with the ventriloquist analogy, mm. she's now the dummy in Jeremy Hunt. Oh, one hundred percent. So he he's running the show. He really is. Um, but last night you mentioned that interview with Chris Mason. Mm. Um, Liz Truss said she's not going anywhere and she's going to lead them into the next election. Well, we'll so that's see what, what happens in the next 24 hours. But I think just with the Conservative Party, they need to... I think Liz Truss has to go because she's already tarnished. Mm. But they need to find the right time so that it's long enough from when she became Prime Minister that it isn't, like, a disaster. Yeah. And just enough time for them to prepare for the next election. Mm. Um, so I, I think at some point some point in the next sort of six months I think she will be gone yeah I think I don't yeah we're not talking a year here really we are talking months in terms of how yeah. long she's going to last um, so in that case then one question I've got for you is if you know well I don't think it's a case of if but when Liz Truss is resigned forced out whatever it may be who do you think could potentially be the next leader of the Tory party next Prime Minister well I, the way it's looking you'd say Jeremy Hunt but he's already ran for leader twice twice which tends to be the cut-off. If you run twice and fail twice, you don't really become leader. I'm not sure anyone has run more than twice and became leader. Um, but what you might see is that the where we had a leadership election with Sunak and Truss, when Theresa May stepped down, there was no leadership election for Boris Johnson. Mm. There was just a collective agreement that he would be the next Prime Minister uh, amongst Conservative MPs and the party members. So what you might see is a collective agreement for Jeremy Hunt. Yeah. So they won't need he won't need to run again for Prime Minister, he'll just become Prime Minister. So he would be my probably front runner and then you've got mm. Penny Mordant. And then Sunak. Sunak is probably the best man for the job because in the leadership debates 
he set out exactly what was going to happen yeah. if Liz Truss became Prime Minister and almost word for word mm. that has happened. Exactly. But again, he's tarnished with the Johnson uh, government and it would be like the Conservative Party holding their hands up again and saying, we made another mistake, we should have chosen Rishi Sunak. Yeah. So I, I'd probably go with Jeremy Hunt as my best bet. I would as well, yeah. I think whoever comes next, it'd, I think, maybe be a case of a necessary evil because obviously, if you know, like you say, Rishi Sunak would be a good fit, but he has tarnished himself. And then Jeremy Hunt as well is maybe seen as a safe option, but again, he hasn't got the best track record. Looking back at you know his time as health secretary was probably the most controversial. You had the junior doctor. You had a lot of clashes in that time. So again, I think even him coming in as chancellor um, was quite controversial as well because obviously he's not a very popular figure. But yeah, it'd be a case of anyone who's better than Liz Truss at the moment, which could yeah. really be anyone right it's now. Finding the right time to change yeah. leader. I think we've got to that situation, mm. which is not something you want to be saying about. Your Prime Minister, what are we, five weeks in? Five, six five weeks, weeks yeah. yeah. So Something like that. So our second story this week is about the Just Stop Oil protests that we saw where two protesters have been arrested over criminal damage after throwing tins of tomato soup at Van Gogh's sunflowers painting at the National Gallery in London. Um, and then after they threw the soup at the painting, they then glued themselves to the wall, which has, has made a big... It went viral online. Mm. Um, but the point of the protest was to stop all new oil and gas ventures by the government, and then they filmed themselves asking the question, what is worth more, life or art? So the, this is not the first protest we've seen from them. We've no. seen loads of protests. They Just yesterday when I was researching, actually, they have... Two protesters climbed a bridge in between Essex and Kent, hmm. so the bridge had to close. So that was one. They, I've seen a video of them throwing paint all over an Aston Martin. Yeah, that was shop. at the weekend, I think, or yeah. Friday. Yeah, uh, that was also a protest against fossil fuel usage. And I remember watching a football game, might have been a year ago now, where a protester ran onto the pitch and cable tied himself to the goalpost, so the game <laughs> had to stop for about fifteen minutes. So. They're making a big impact with their protests. Mm. It's for, I think we can all say it's for a good cause. It's for yeah, the environment. We can definitely agree on that. But the question is, is this the right way to be going about it? But I, I would tend to say, not yes, but I don't think we'd be talking here today about it if they if they didn't do stuff like yeah, this. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. That's the thing, they're getting people talking. And, you know, eventually enough people start talking, something will change, I think, but... Yeah, obviously you you can't argue with their message and what they're fighting for because obviously the environment is a massive issue and it, it I think it grows like even more important probably every single day. But it's just the way they're going about this protest. Like I was watching a video at the weekend from Russell Howard who you wouldn't maybe expect to be sort of clued up polit you know, politically wise, but he had a he's got some really good insights into news and stuff like this and he was chatting about these protests and he said they're alienating the people who are supporting their cause by all these protests. You know, you've mentioned a couple there. They also blocked. I think they, I don't know if they've done this once or twice, but they just sat in the road and blocked yeah, London traffic as well over the past couple of weeks. And and doing stuff like that, like yes, it gets media attention, it gets people talking, but it also just annoys the hell out of the people who are actually going to support the cause, and they, you know, it'll turn turn off supporters even more. So 
yes, they've got good intentions, but it is also a bit of a nuisance. Well, it's very much of a nuisance, I think. And I just think with... I think their message would be this painting of nature mm. is being protected more than nature than itself. Than nature itself. I think that was their kind of main argument. Mm. Well, they said, what's worth more, life or art? It seems that paintings of nature is worth yeah. more than nature itself. Um, but I, I agree it's... Their message is actually so important because they're, so they're called Just Stop Oil, mm. which you'd hear that and you'd think they want no fossil fuels to be used at all. They want to go completely green, completely new renewable sources of energy, which is good, but people would say, we can't just change now. We need, it, This needs to be a phase. It needs to be gradual, thing. definitely, yeah. But what they're actually saying is, which if they maybe spread their message a bit clearer, they're protesting for stopping new, new oil ventures. So they're not saying stop all. They're saying stop all the new oil ventures to what we already do. So existing ones they would be happy to keep? They, probably for now. They're, pro- they're protesting hard hard against new ones. New ones, right. And then obviously with the focus to get rid of it mm. entirely, which I think we can all agree with needs to happen. We need we need green energy. We need yeah. new renewable energy. Um, but they just need to be careful not to go so extreme that they're losing their message because I, I, I had to research. That was their, their message. That's on their website. Yeah, so see, I wouldn't even know that. I, like you said, I would have just guessed just stop oil. That says what you need. I think it will be all oil. Yeah. They're stopping new oil ventures. Right, I see. So again, even their message there is getting a bit convoluted between what their name is, what the protests are, and what they're actually fighting for. Because, yeah, as as you said, I can imagine, you know, some point down the line in the future they want oil, all oil ventures stopped. Yeah. But for now, that's not clear at all. What's clear is that they're causing... Again, we can come back to the word chaos. They're causing a lot of chaos and not putting their message out there clearly enough for people to actually support what they're doing. But I think it's a good message, and we've linked this with just a, a second mm. smaller story this week, which is that a study's found that scientists think that we may be living through the sixth mass extinction of animals in our time, and we'd be living through the largest loss of life on Earth since the time of the dinosaurs. Um, so the main study found that animal populations are experiencing an average decline of almost 70% since 1970. Yeah, which is shocking. It is. So this is this is linked to Just Stop Oil because they're mm. protesting for climate change, big climate change, mm. and actually we're seeing the impact of the damages to the environment now already. Mm. So they're... they're they're protesting for completely the right thing. Yeah. And maybe this shows that we do need to change now. It needs to be just stop oil right now. Mm. Um, otherwise, we risk losing more of our of our own planet. Yeah, I think, again, when you sort of pair it with this story, I'm probably going to sound like a hypocrite here, but maybe the, the throwing soup at Van Gogh and all these protests, you can see why it's so severe and why these protests are perhaps so extreme because when you look at that number 70% how long is it going to be until that number gets even higher um and i think the climate conversation is one that's been ongoing for years it's not just you know a, you know climate change anymore it's a it's a climate crisis and it has been for years and it is definitely something that needs to start changing now but again going back to i think what we discussed last week and what you said which is that when times are tough, as we're seeing at the moment, 
climate the climate agenda is always one that's going to be you know left out put on the back burner and is not made a priority but i think this story is showing that that should be the exact opposite yeah and the chief executive at wwf uk tanya Steele, mm. uh, came out and said the climate and nature crises their fates entwined are not some faraway threat our grandchildren will solve with still to be discovered technology so that the WWF UK have come out and saying this is not something that we can kick down the line. Mm. This needs to be sorted now. So that the climate and nature crisis are entwined. That is where we link the Just Stop Oil and this this story about the decline in population of animals. And it does it it needs to happen now. Uh, um, yeah, absolutely. But as you say, with crisis after crisis, it's just it it does get kicked down the line, and it it will probably take something catastrophic. I think to really make a change mm. um, which I think is really sad and that's really saying something because it obviously if I you know was an expert on the environment which I'm not but look at these numbers now I'd say that's catastrophic enough yeah. that it should start something but I also think you are right it's going to take something even bigger than that which maybe shows our ignorance around the climate Absolutely. and how important how pressing it actually is that it's going to take something even bigger than, so is it just looking at this 70% um, of all animal populations, or is that in a specific it area? It just says Earth's wildlife populations. Has decreased by 70%. Yeah. So, yeah, potentially going to say it's something bigger for people to wake up. It is, yeah. But I think with saying it needs something catastrophic, I think on the other side we have to say this isn't something that's going to change overnight. Mm. It will take probably the complete rejig of society, how we function, Um if you look at what foods we eat, how we travel, all stuff like that, it needs to, it does need to change, but it, it can't change overnight, which is, mm. I think, the problem with these Just Stop Oil protests is that it looks like they want it to change overnight and yeah. haven't thought about actually the impact and what will go into changing. So if they just got their message across a bit clearer and then understood that it's not going to change overnight, mm. then we might get somewhere. But as I say, it will probably take a big catastrophic event to, to change the way people are thinking on climate. Okay, so our last story that we're going to talk about before we move on is the Daily Mail. So what has happened with the Daily Mail? I think this was launched... Um, so there was a lawsuit launched against the Daily Mail group or Associated Newspapers on the 6th of October, so we're talking just a couple of weeks ago, uh, and they've been accused of abhorrent criminal activity by a number of really high-profile people, most crucially Doreen Lawrence, um, who's a member of the House of Lords. She's also uh, the mother of murder teenager Stephen Lawrence, um, and there are a host of other people involved in this as well, so I think... Um, so Prince Harry has been involved, Elton John and his husband David Furnish, uh, actresses Sadie Frost and Elizabeth Hurley, and former Lib Dem MP Simon Hughes are all um, bringing cases forward against the Daily Mail group um, because they've been accused of... It's From what I've heard, from what I've read, from what I've listened to, it's almost been branded as the next phone hacking scandal. Um, obviously, we saw that over a decade ago with the news of the world, but they've been accused of very similar things, so... Um, they've been accused of hiring private investigators, using listening devices in people's cars and homes to listen in on conversations, um, picking up voicemails, um, paying police officials, impersonating individuals to get medical information, credit card bills, phone bills, 
accessing bank accounts, all this sort of stuff um, is, is what they're accused of and this host of people are, are bringing it forward in the case. Um, and I think most crucially is that the uh, barrister, I think it's something you found, David Sherborne, who represented Colleen Rooney in the Agatha Christie case, has now taken this case on um, in court as well. So I think the biggest thing with this, and again, it's probably to be expected, when I was looking to try and find some extra research on this, I saw two articles on this story. It's been, as you'd imagine, very well hidden. I only found out about it from a podcast episode. Um, but it's just another example of a, of a tabloid going after these sorts of stories and those sorts of people. Yeah, I think what what hit me on this story is not the celebrities they've gone after Prince Harry or mm-hmm. John um, so you, you, if you read the story at a glance you think oh it's celebrities complaining that they don't have private life and stuff when what hit me was Doreen Lawrence's involvement Doreen Lawrence in it because she's not a celebrity exactly she is a victim of crime and at the especially at she might have not celebrity status now but fame yeah now, she's known isn't she's well she? known but her claim is to do with the weeks directly after Stephen's murder. Mm. So that wasn't about collecting celebrity gossip. That was complete infringement of privacy. It, this is illegal as well. This, this, that, yeah, that's the thing. Illegal. This is illegal. Um, so, as you say, sort of, I could, I could not understand, but it's not a new thing. Newspapers trying to find out information. No, on celebrities, it's not but that. With Doreen Loris, that really hit me that this is something that really does need sorting out. Yeah, I think with Doreen Lawrence as well and the whole sort of Lawrence family, it's almost like a betrayal um, because at the time of Stephen Lawrence's murder and the trial and trying to find those um, who committed it, the Daily Mail were very supportive of the family. They were almost like another friend to the editor. At the time, and I think still to this day, um, Paul Dacker was a close friend um, or maybe acquaintance of the father, Stephen Lawrence. Um, he did some work on his house and he was very committed to bringing the killers of Stephen Lawrence to justice. I mean, they had the fame... I don't know if you've seen it, the famous news front page of the yeah. Daily Mail with murderers on the cover. Um, and, you know, the Lawrence family spoke out saying that partly the reason that these men were convicted were because the Daily Mail went out on a limb and supported them in this case. So now that this has come out and come to light, it must feel like a massive betrayal that they've got all these other stories by listening to their personal, private conversations. And like you say, Dory Lawrence isn't a celebrity. She's not out or after money. None of these celebrities are, as you, as you might expect. It's an infringement on privacy. I, I think that's the malicious, yeah. the malicious one. Whereas a story might come out that, you know, Prince Harry and... Mm. Meghan Markle have said this about a royal family member yeah. on a phone call. That like that that isn't that's gossip mm. and in that sense. Whereas this has a malicious aspect to it. This is a mother who's had her son stabbed to death in a racially motivated attack yeah. back in nineteen ninety three. This is no this isn't gossip. This is someone who would have been mourning at that time mm-hmm. and it is a complete invasion of privacy. Um lack of respect and illegal on top of that so and it, illegal yeah and I think with the you mentioned with the barrister who's just successfully yep. re- represented Colleen Rooney I think the Daily Mail will at least be bogged down in this for a little bit of time and 
if what they're alleging can be proven, which is, I imagine, the difficult part mm. of it, um, it will be the next phone hacking scandal. It will it? absolutely be the next phone hacking scandal, yeah. Um, and I think ever since this has come out, obviously the Daily Mail is, you know, very loudly denied that they've had any involvement in this sort of, you know, criminal activity. It wouldn't be their sort of practice to do anything like this. But going back to the news hacking scandal, the news of the world, it's not the first time a tabloid has been accused of this. Um, and listening to, so I was listening to the News Agents podcast, which is where I found out about this story. And they were chatting to a journalist who worked for the News of the World at the time of this scandal. And he said, you know, there's no doubt that most, if not every tabloid in the country at that time and up until present day are using these sorts of devices and these sorts of means to get their stories. He said when he was a journalist doing all this, there was millions of tips from stories that were then being published that he found in people's voicemails from private investigators. So, unfortunately, it's not. It, it's almost not a new story. Like, yes, it's a new set of people, but it's not a new story in terms of how these papers go about getting some of their stories. And you're right in saying that the coverage on it's been almost Almost minimal. Yeah, It's not a story that I came across before you mentioned it to mm. me. And we obviously look all the time for... Yep for the stories that are going on, because obviously we record this. So it is, I, I'd like to know why it's not being reported on as much. Do you, do you have any thoughts on why? I, I, I can't understand why it hasn't been reported No, because even, I mean, obviously you wouldn't expect the Daily Mail to go, no, we're not. accused yeah. of this. <laughs> yeah. so, so that's understandable. But yeah, I only saw, I saw one article with The Guardian and one article with the BBC. There was nothing else. Even from any other tabloid, you, you know, you might expect competitors to come up with something. But there was nothing. I don't know if, you know, higher ups, because, I mean, this might be a very tenuous link, but one thing I did put in um, was that this story was quite, well, again, on the podcast they were talking about it, it was quite important because not only is obviously all this criminal activity going on, but the editor-in-chief of the Daily Mail, Paul Dacker, was also potentially up for a peerage from Boris Johnson's honours list, um, which has now been announced that he's been passed over, but... I don't know if because of that link, because of that relationship, maybe it's been you know covered up Possibly, from other papers. Yeah. The, um, the only other thing I can think of is that if it is a, if it is going to be an active case and trial, I'd imagine is that there's n- nothing legally to comment on apart from that they've brought the case. Um, but you'd you'd think that would have at least heard about it. Yeah. That's the thing you would have heard something, but yeah, absolutely nothing. Like it's not on sort of, you know, news bulletins, local news, anything like that. It's these two articles and that's on a podcast. That's it. So it's very hush hush. But like you say, I, I don't know if the trial is ongoing at the moment or the case is ongoing at the moment. So obviously that might feed into it. But yeah, it's very hush hush at the moment. Okay, so moving on, um, as we do every week, we've got some, we've got three good news stories um, to talk about today to to lighten the mood, should we say? So the first one um, is that a sighting. There's been a sighting of a rare bird on the Isle of Scilly. So the Blackburnian warbler has been seen for the first time in England. The bird is is usually native to North America, um, but it's the first time it's been sighted in England. It has been seen in the UK before, um, but not in England. So. This was, I mean, obviously not a big story, but a big story with bird watchers. When I was reading it at the weekend, there were people who were coming from Shetland, who were coming from year all, like literally all over Europe, just to come to England to see this bird, 
which obviously seems quite trivial, but I guess if it's, again, unprecedented, but this is quite unprecedented in a good way, um, then why wouldn't you travel to see a rare bird that is usually from North America? I think I can give quite a few reasons about why I, why I wouldn't travel to see a rare bird, especially coming anywhere other than if it was right in my back garden. I don't think I, I'm not even sure I'd bother going to the window. You can tell we're not bird watchers. I feel bad now after we've talked about the, the animal populations and stuff. Yeah, come on, Harry, care about the environment, care about the Blackburnian warbler. Um, I mean, no, I mean, I again, I would not go and see a black bird anymore. But I just, I would just really like this story. Just see, it was something happy um, after all the chaos. But yeah, something a little bit funny. But the next one, the next one absolutely made my weekend. This made me so happy. So the next story I found was that marmalade sales have ridden eight, risen 18% in September. I mean, it's following the Queen's death, which obviously isn't the happy bit, but... Lots more people buying marmalade, which obviously we saw after the Queen's death because loads of people were leaving marmalade sandwiches. Right. But I just that, thought... Is that the link? That's why, yeah. I actually tried marmalade for the first time. Did you? Just a few weeks ago. Did you like it? Which is actually in line with the Queen's death, but had nothing to do with the Queen's <laughs> death. Um, I didn't... You know, they say you either love it or you hate it. Is oh, I thought that, that was Marmite. Oh, is that Marmite? <laughs> which Marmalade. Marmalade, I thought yeah. we were talking about Marmite. No. <laughs> No, that's a completely different I've had marmalade. I really like marmalade. (laughs) (laughs) I thought we were talking about marmite. No. Marmalade and marmite, two completely (laughs) different things. Marmite sandwiches. Oh, Mm. crack. But, I mean, have you you seen the skit with Paddington and the Queen? I have, yeah. The Jubilee, yeah. yeah. So, So was that marmalade? That was marmalade sandwiches, yeah. Not marmalade marmalade sandwiches. Oh, crikey. Um, the next one, I think the next one is one you found, but obviously um, BBC is 100 years old, if you want to yeah, so talk us through that. the Saturday just gone, it was the 100-year anniversary of the BBC, and one show viewers voted their favourite BBC shows of all time, just yeah, they're talking about the 100-year anniversary. So I thought we could talk some of them through. I'm very happy to see... About what you've seen and what you haven't seen in it. I've seen a fair few of them. Yeah, I think I've seen most of them, actually. Only Fools on Horses I've never seen. (gasps) I've never seen it. Oh, Harry, it's class entertainment. I absolutely love Only Fools on Horses. That was was number one. Um, Yeah, I'm very glad to see that was number one. Yeah, followed by Doctor Who, which I assume we've both seen. We've definitely seen. seen that. Then Strictly Come Dancing, I don't know whether you watch it. Love a bit of Strictly. Um, Followed by Line Line of Duty, Duty. which is my favourite on this list, probably. Um, Call the Midwife, I love Call the Midwife. I've not seen it, and Mm. I've not seen Gavin and Stacey either, honestly. Have you not seen Gavin and Stacey? That is like a British icon. But yeah, Gavin and Stacey is fantastic. Haven't seen Faulty Towers. Faulty Towers is so funny. Oh, okay. It's so funny, it's really good. I haven't seen that. I've seen Blackadder, have you seen Blackadder? Oh, that's good, that is funny. More Common Wise I haven't seen. Have you? No. no. no some of them are before our time. I think it's some of them are before our time. Well, yeah, exactly. If it was 10 years, we'd be fine, but 100 years, maybe not. Uh, Vicar of Dibley I've seen. Yeah, I've seen a few of them. Yeah. Dad's Army. I loved Dad's Army when I was younger. Not seen it. Oh, I really like that. Planet Earth. Planet Earth 1 and 2, which is... We've been watching Frozen Planet Yeah. Army. It's just the... Not... Frozen version of that. David Attenborough. <laughs> Not it's frozen just version. Fantastic. Yeah, he is. Then we've got Killing Eve, which I liked. I probably wouldn't have it this high up. Ooh. 
Ooh, wow. I thought it was okay. Opinion. Dinner ladies I've never heard of. I've heard of that but never seen it. Yes, Minister oh, yes, Prime Minister, haven't heard of that. I've heard of it, but I think that is again before our time. Uh, right. Sherlock I thought should have been higher. I, I agree with that. And I saw yeah. Sherlock was sixteenth and I was like, No, no, no. I I would put it above Killing Eve, even though I love Killing Eve, but yeah. Sherlock's fantastic. And that's that right right near the top. Yeah, agreed. The Good Life? I don't I don't think I've seen no. this or heard of it. Um Top of the Pops. Yeah. Do that of the pops. The royal family as well is fantastic. I really like that. I've seen you see like funny clips from yeah, um, and then Blue, Blue Peter, Peter, which I've never really watched even growing up. Oh, I watched it when I was little. I was surprised that it was so low. I, I kind of feel like that would have been higher. But but I'll tell you what isn't going to be on this list, and I don't know whether you've seen it. Go on, it's Inside Man. Have you Inside. even heard of it? It's got David Tennant in oh, it. Oh, this is new, isn't it? Vicar. And I've been watching it. I've, I've seen oh. three of the four episodes. It has to be, and I'm really disappointed because I like David Tennant as an actor. It has to be, possibly the worst thing I have You're ever joking. ever watched. <gasps> really, Even really. With bad. David Tennant, I love it is, David Tennant. The plot is. Right, tell us the plot. What is it about then? So it is a vicar. Are you going to watch it? I mean, yeah, I probably will now. Well, to I, see how bad I'll it is. Explain the premise. It, there is a. There's, so the first episode, there's a vicar played by David Tennant mm. and someone in his church, troubled, um, a suicide risk, comes to him with a flash drive that has, um, you know, pictures of children on. Uh, but the, the troubled guy is a paedophile. Oh, my God. And he's running away and he gives the flash drive to David Tennant. Uh-huh. And then David Tennant takes it home. Oh and God. meanwhile, his son is being tutored because his son's in, in school. Okay. And the tutor sees what's on the flash drive. And so that's the premise. Oh, it wow. sounds really good. It sounds <laughs> a bit the, weird, to be honest. It, it is weird, but it's that's the premise. And then it just spirals and spirals. Like, every just anything ridiculous that pops into mind happens <laughs> in the show. And the one thing that doesn't happen so far is that they go to the police at any point. So they're oh doing God. all these things. And at any point, if they, if they had a choice between doing what they choose to do and going, going to the police... Because <laughs> bear in mind, David Tennant or his son or his family are not the ones guilty of this, yeah. this thing. So it's about David Tennant trying to protect because he feels like he's got a duty of care for the person. In the person church. who gave him the fast drive. Um, oh. Well, I, I've left out a, a good... 90% of the stuff that happened <laughs> so it's it's probably watch it but when, I was just watching it just shaking my head thinking yeah. this is actually a bit ridiculous I'll, I'll, I'll give it a watch yeah. I mean it sounds crackers um, it, is, but... it is bonkers <laughs> oh wow Shall we move on to sport? Let's move on to sport. What's been going so on in sport? The main story in everybody's world, even yours, Erin, should be the fact <laughs> that mind. Liverpool beat reigning champions Manchester City 1-0 on Sunday. Um, it was a fantastic game. Salah scored the winner. Jurgen Klopp got sent off. There was contentious refereeing and VAR decisions. The game had absolutely everything. Um, so I was very happy. So it put you in a good <coughs> mood, at least. It did, but then on a more negative note... There's been videos circling and wide reports of Man City fans mocking the Hillsborough tragedy, singing vile chants, vandalising the stadium with words of a similar sentiment. <clears throat> and on top of that, there have been reports of some Liverpool fans throwing coins at City players and staff. So while the result of the match was fantastic, there are 
elements on show here that do not have a place in the sport. No, not at all. And unfortunately, sticking to the topic, I don't know whether you even came across it, but last night the, there was a panorama show on the Champions League final that took place in May between Liverpool and Real Madrid, hmm. where... So this is not too distant from... We were just talking about yeah. Hillsborough there. So a panel of experts have concluded that at the Champions League final, the organisation of the event at the stadium was an abject failure. So the context of this is that 15,000 Liverpool fans were bottlenecked through a gap that only one person could th- fit through at a time. Oh so God. the police parked their cars next to each other, blocked this walkway, police parked the cars and just left a gap for one person at a time to go through. So that caused a huge crush. And then on top of that, you had police aggression towards fans, um, kind of thinking that fans from England, from Liverpool, would be these hooligans that you've, we, we saw decades ago, mm. which obviously isn't the case. And then on top of that, you had Parisian gangs present trying to force their way into the stadium, picking pockets, causing trouble. But the big thing of this is because of the crushes caused people reported that they couldn't breathe and it reinvoked traumatic feelings for those oh that either experienced the Hillsborough tragedy or have family or have yeah. learned about the tragedy. So obviously there was a, a panorama show last night, which I will have to watch mm. uh, to keep up on it, but that's just a, a negative side that that report's coming out. So if you can, I encourage people to read up on this report just to know what happened because UEFA, the European governing body tend to try and get away with as much as they yeah. can. So if they try and brush this under the carpet, they will. So people I mean, need to I not don't let them... I think they can. I think if anyone, the public will hold them to account. Well, again, because of Hillsborough. Do we know why why this has happened? Like, the the gap, the 15,000, why, why it's was just, this... So I went to Paris myself, but didn't go to the... I didn't have a ticket, so I didn't mm. go to the stadium. Um, there just seemed to be a police attitude towards fans that was just negative... Right. Like herding cattle, almost. It, mm. it, it wasn't like it was people, and just fans. Yeah. Because in that fifteen thousand Liverpool supporters, you had kids That's getting crushed. Families couldn't breathe. in there. Yeah. And again, like you said, people who who know the trauma of Hillsborough, yeah. and I can't even imagine how awful that must have been to experience. Yeah. And moving on then, but unfortunately, keeping another negative tone. So this week started good with the Liverpool result, and now yeah. it's just. Not so good. Falling back into the negative, negative news, but Manchester, Manchester United star Mason Greenwood mm. has this week been charged with attempted rape, assault and controlling behaviour, behaviour all towards his ex-girlfriend. And this comes after videos that were put on social media in January of this year. Um, I don't know whether... Are you familiar with this? Uh, this I case? did see this yeah. story, yeah, I did. So it's probably fair to say that police hopefully have established the facts now and because they've charged Mason Greenwood, you'd think that the police think that they have enough evidence to go ahead and prosecute him. Mm. Which, obviously, if he is proven guilty, that is the correct thing to be yeah, absolutely. going on. Um, on to F1 now. We said last week that Max Verstappen has won the Drivers' Championship with four races to go, which he did. And But it now came out that Red Bull exceeded the budget cap this year which is in place to keep the sport as fair as possible in terms of how much money people can put into upgrading the car. And there's been calls from the likes of McLaren boss, Zach Brown, for Red Bull to be punished for what he believes is effectively bare-faced cheating. 
Um, so but, basically, this mud money is giving them an advantage. To yeah, because the, there's a budget cap, so the teams can only spend a certain amount, <sighs> and they've gone over it. And then obviously, they've they've walked the drivers' championship. Mm. So whether anything substantial will be done remains in question. But I'd say here and now that nothing substantial will be done, um, and Red Bull will probably get away with it. And just quickly elsewhere, there's been huge support for Chelsea women's boss Emma Hayes after she had to undergo emergency surgery this week. And in rugby union, the Premiership Club Wasps, based in Coventry, have gone into administration, meaning that 167 players and staff are having to be made redundant. So just to round up, which is actually continuing the bad news. So I started with Liverpool winning, which is great news. The bad news, so I mentioned my last man standing game yes, that I played with my friends and family last week where you pick a team each week to win. If they win, you go through to the next round mm-hmm. and you can't pick them again. If they lose, you're out. So this was the first week of a new round and I picked Manchester United to beat Newcastle. They drew nil-nil, so I'm out straight away. <laughs> I've fallen at the first hurdle. Um, so I was in a right mood <laughs> on Sunday <laughs> afternoon but then Liverpool went on and beat Man City so Liverpool were and you were happy again. everything was better yeah. <laughs> right shall we move on to books books of the week yeah books can, of the week can you talk about your one first yeah Eddie? yeah absolutely I can so um, so I'm, I'm between two books at the moment, but I haven't read enough of them to really talk about. So I decided to pick one of my favourite books that I've read this year, which is Everything I Know About Love. And it's a memoir by Dolly Alderton. And it has quickly become one of my favourite books. So um, the sort of summary of it's a it's a memoir. It documents her, well, her life, really, sort of, uh, you know, young teenager moving into adult to university. And it. it the book does what it says and it's everything she knows about love so it documents relationships um friendships you know navigating all those confusing times as a teenager and sort of going into university um and it's just a really lovely book i mean it's funny it's moving it's got everything and it's a really well put together book it's not just it's not just written it's sort of um you've got like recipes in there she puts recipes in that she used growing up in her 20s so like there's this post hangover like macaroni and cheese recipe she puts in there. There's text messages between her and her best friend Farley. There's emails that she sends when she's trying to get a job, when she's trying to get a first job um, living in Camden. So it's a really nice sort of multi-faceted book. Um, and even though the the book is called Everything I Know About Love, it not only focuses on romantic relationships, but I think the best bit of it is her talking about the strong female friendship she cultivates from a young age. And then as those continue, as she gets older, into her 20s and her 30s, uh, and I've mentioned her friend Farley, who is her best friend, who is like a major figure in this book, and watching their friendship as it grows and develops from sort of, you know, the age of, I think it's maybe 10 or 11 when they first meet, to sort of present day, is a really lovely, moving part of the book. And it's nice to have that constant as you go through as well. Uh, and the book, um, as you know, it's become so popular, they've now adapted it into a BBC drama series, which I think aired earlier this year, which is fantastic. Uh, I've watched it multiple times already. But it's just, it's a really good, almost handbook for your 20s. So, like, I mean, I found it really useful, you know, when I think I read this um, when I was in my old job 
um, and I didn't really, I was sort of a bit stuck. I didn't really know what to do next. So it's, yeah, it's a good sort of help book in terms of navigating those periods of uncertainty when you're lonely, when you don't know what to do, when, you know, you're stuck in a house, you know, you're living by yourself away from your parents, you know, navigating those moments where there are adult moments where you're on your own, you've got to figure out what to do next. It was just, it's a really lovely book and it's good in all different ways Like as, as well I've put on here. It, it tackles some really difficult topics, so bereavement and eating disorders and I think abuse comes up in this book as well. So the the to me, there's nothing bad about this book. It was fantastic. It, it made me laugh out loud, which I very rarely do with a book. It made me absolutely sob, which I do with more books than I'd care to admit to. <laughs> But it was just, it's its wonderful. And Dolly Alderson is, I just think she's amazing. Uh, I mean, she's a fantastic writer and journalist. She's, I think she's a columnist with The Times. Um, and she's just got these most amazing insights into life and love and relationships. So it was just fantastic. And I wholeheartedly recommend this. It's one of my favourite books now. And th- it links to something I'll talk about when mm. I talk about my book. So this is kind of a coming of age story from being yeah. teen to adult but does it focus on that that time when you are technically an adult in the adult world but you don't have a clue and you have no clue what's going on that. yeah it does and I think a lot of that is focused on so she talks about you know going to university I think she went to Bath or Bristol one of those and then it's uh, she moved to London she moved to Camden and then that first I think the first couple of years get yeah, focused on the fact that she has no idea what she wants to do. She did a degree in media or literature or something. She had no idea what she wanted to do with that, no idea what she wanted to do for work. She knew she wanted to write, but had no idea how to get there. She was living in Camden. She you know, she had a nice life in Camden with friends, but yeah, completely clueless, how to sort of manage money, how to date, how to look after yourself, how to get a job, all that stuff that I'm sure a lot of people in their 20s, I know I've experienced that so far. So yeah, and it's re- so it's relatable in that sense as well because all the worries that she had when she was well our age, you know, just sort of happens now as well. So yeah, it's it is a coming of age tale as well, which is it just yeah it just makes it really lovely to relate to as well. So yeah, where, everything you'd expect really. Where does it? What age does it take it to? Um, so I think it goes up to present day. I mean, now I think Dolly Alderton is twenty nine or thirty. Um, but yeah, she sort of writes up to modern day. So. Um, she talks about her life after university, getting her first job. She got her first job um, as like a story producer on Made in Chelsea and when that was sort of starting to become quite popular. And then she moved to journalism, so she talks about her work up until now, her life up until now. So, yeah, it goes from, I think, about the age of, yeah, like 10 or 11 until present day, you know, what she's learned. She started going to therapy. She talks about that in the book as well. Um and sort of being single, coming to terms with being lonely, that sort of thing. So, yeah, it, it documents a lot of her life so it, far. Yeah, it sounds like it talks about all the normalities of life that maybe you don't see in yeah. books and films. That That's the thing um, which is really relatable as well, because I think you are right. Like, I think when people think 20s, at least before I came, you know, into my 20s, that's what I thought. It's glamorous. It's, you've got, you know, you're independent, you're an adult, all this fun stuff's going on. Then you get into your 20s and it's absolutely terrifying <laughs> and chaotic. So, yeah, it's it's the sort of, I've put here, it's the perfect antidote um, to that because, yeah, it talks about the loneliness and the fear, depression, all the not bad things, but all the other things that happen in your twenties, the normal things like you say. Um yeah, so it goes into that as well. 
It's just a really good book. Sounds it. <laughs> so, moving on to my book this week, it is Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro, um, which links nicely it from does. your book because it's a coming of age novel, but it is whereas yours was a memoir, mine is a dystopian novel. Mm. But there's only one dystopian element to the book, and that is that human cloning exists. So everything's the same, apart from we have human cloning. Yeah. So the book's written from the perspective of Kathy H as a child, um, and it follows her, obviously, coming of age as she grows up. Um, but it's about her time and her friend's time at Hailsham Boarding School, which is kind of a typical 1990s English boarding school. Mm. So when you read the first few chapters, it's quite mundane. It's quite you're not too sure what's going on. It seems boring. It's just these kids in a boarding school, just living normal but uneventful lives. And then after a few chapters, you find out that actually these people that you've been reading about aren't people at all. They're human clones. So the purpose of Kathy, the protagonist, and her friends and all the people at the school, all the children is that they are human clones that have been created to donate their organs to real people. Mm. So it goes through the key coming-of-age questions, which you've talked about in everything I know about love. Um, So it talks about the protagonist growing up, losing their innocence, becoming part of the wider world. They want to know who they are, find meaning in who they are. They want to know what they're going to do when they grow up, what what kind of life do they want to live. So it's all these similarities of a typical coming-of-age story. But then the dark but key reversal by Shigeru is that the time as children for these protagonists is actually all the life they will ever live because they're not going to get that chance to grow up to be who they want Mm. to be in the wider world. So it touches on the morality of human cloning. You know, Should these children know that they're clones? Should we be doing it? It's a love story between Kathy and Tommy who grow up together and then are in touch later in life. Kathy cares for Tommy as mm. he's donating the last of the last of his organs before he then eventually dies. So it just it, it portrays the beauties of life as children and then contrasts that with a darker side of adulthood. Um which converts the usual trope of a coming of age story where the youngsters would usually be chaotic, make mistakes, mm, don't know what yeah. to do in childhood and then coming to adulthood and everything makes sense whereas actually as this story goes on as as Kathy grows up the less things tend to make sense mm. because she finds out that her whole experience in life is kind of futile and isn't really life so it, it actually it's really good to talk about after the book you've talked yeah. about because it, it plays on that trope of passing from child mm, to adult of age idea. yeah yeah, I I was interested to see you pick this book because I've I've read this quite a while ago, so yeah. I was interested. In, so, did you like this book? I, I really yeah. like this book. I, I, once you get past the first few chapters, which is the point by Shigeru mm. that you know this is just a mundane, normal, normal yeah. book, but it isn't. There's a darker side to it. Once you get past those first few chapters, I really enjoyed the book. Mm. What did you think about it? I didn't like it. You didn't it. like but it? But to be honest, like listening to you talk to it, I'm like, I don't know if I just missed part of it because I read it in my first year of uni. Um, and I, f- I found it quite a difficult book to read because sort of the concept just seemed very abstract to yeah. me. And uh, yeah, I, I, I did kind of struggle with that. But 
I think the bit you picked up on is um, the fact that like their childhood is the only bit they'll live and that's the only bit that makes sense and I think I maybe partly missed that but yeah this might convince me to give it a reread but originally I, I, I really didn't like it I think we like and dislike opposite things I think we, we do yeah we <laughs> last week you really loved it I didn't like it um, that's good for us to talk about that is it? yeah I mean it means we've got a good balance we've got we've got differing opinions but yeah I think as well I, at least from what I remember I think one thing that really frustrated me was the characters in this book because I don't think any of them were particularly likeable no at least that's what I remember um, yeah the audio seemed very frustrating I think because it's narrated because it's, it's narrated by a clone about clones mm. I think that dull tone and uninteresting tone is part of the philosophical yeah. message he's trying to put across that they're just normal mm. they're not extraordinary they're normal people I think that's what I found that it was quite dull I think I've just missed the point of the book yeah, I, you think I can understand that, that's kind of the philosophical hook that he's trying to play the book on which if you're not crazy passionate about will just make the book mm. kind of dull to read Shall we talk about our film of the week? I hope we agree about this <laughs> So I chose the film this week and I chose Hidden Figures, um, which is a story of three female African-American mathematicians in the 1960s. The film takes place in 1961 um, and they play a pivotal role in the astronaut John Glenn's launch into orbit. So it takes place um, when the Russian and American space race is going on at the beginning of the 60s. Um, and as we see... I mean, it's it's called Hidden Figures because these women's contribution to this project was completely diminished while they were working and, and as history has moved on as well. I mean, until I, f- I heard about this film, I had no idea who these women were. And as you see through the course of the film, they also have to do with racial and gender discrimination at work. So it's a really strong, powerful film. Um, so I think before we get into it, did I think we should see what we both saw of it. Did did we like it? I really liked that. Way, really we found film. a film Harry liked. <laughs> um, so go on, right? You tell us first. What what did you think? What were your maybe favorite bits of the film? Um, my favorite bit of the film was the very very end where they showed you the pictures of obviously the actors that you just watched the film, yeah. but then they're real people. Mm. These hidden fi- hidden figures are real people, and the, my main comment that. I had to bring up that I spoke about last week when I talked about Times Arrow, Martin Amos, with the Holocaust seeming so far away mm. that it couldn't exist in our world as we know it now. This is this gave me sort of the similar feeling that you had this incredibly backwards racial segregation going on throughout the film. So they had to use separate bathrooms, mm-hmm. separate water fountains, separate coffee uh, jugs, and one of the main things in the film is that one of the characters who gets assigned, because these are such clever people, mm. one of them gets assigned to the main maths behind th- these rockets going up into space. And she has to run. I don't, they make it out like it's a long... She has to run It's like basically the other to side her. of campus, yeah. isn't it? She has to run back to the other side of the campus to go to a toilet for um, black African... African American women. Mm. So, my point was that you had this story of segregation and backwards racial ideology contrasted with 
it's happening at the same time as this is set at NASA. So it's happening at the same time with these great technological advancements, literally sending men and rockets into space. Mm. So you had such a backwards thought happening at the same time of such a progressive modern technology. So it just reminded me that something that I feel passionately passionately about that we have to be reminded mm. is that this wasn't that long ago. Again, no, it's, again, it's not. It's six years ago. Did exist in the world as we know it. Um, so that's what I took away from the film. But I really, really enjoyed that. Yeah, I think you're right with that. Is it? You know, it was a time of great progress in one sense. But this was also the time of Martin Luther King, and I think it meant it references it in the film. I think where, um, like silent protests were happening. So um, the bus, the busins, I think I think that's what they were called, yeah. or the sit-ins where they used to go to diners, things like that were all happening at the same time. So yeah, you see sort of two sides of the same coin. You've got great progress, you know, professionally perhaps, technologically as you say, but socially they were completely backwards. Um, but yeah, I I also I really love this film, um, and again, it's one that I can't believe I've left so long to watch. I think my favourite bit of this film, which is something that's established, I think from the opening shots, um, is the motif of female friendship, which is one of my favourite um, tropes in anything with it. Book, it's books, films, TV. Um, so the main, the three main characters, which is the women featured in the film, are Mary Jackson, Dorothy Vaughan, and Catherine Jones, who are these three women the the film focuses on. And you can see throughout the film how close they are, how they support one another, how they're each other's cheerleaders as well, when they're all trying to, you know, progress themselves and come up against um, the barriers that were in in place in the 60s. You know, they push each other forward um, and they motivate each other and they're they're so enthusiastic and supportive of each other. It was a really lovely thing to see. Um, And I would say, even though obviously the film explores the sort of social scape at the time, I would say it's a feel-good film as well. It is, yeah. It um, is a feel-good film. Because where I mentioned the contrast in the progressive aspect and the quite regressive hmm. ideas that were at the time, the one of the main points of the film is that they are desperately trying to be the first to do something. Yes. Be the first to put a man on the moon, be the first to send a man into space, orbit around Earth. But the story is about these black women being the first to break into this mm. all white, all male, yep. um, this place at NASA. They're, so there's a story about the um, is it Dorothy is the first African American supervisor at NASA. Mm-hmm. Um, if you just remind me of the other names, so there's Mary Jackson. Mary Jackson was the first to first African American woman to attend a all white school, yep. wasn't she? And become the first and engineer, engineer at NASA. And then Dorothy, not Dorothy, who's Catherine the, Jones. Catherine Jones was what was she the first? She was she. She broke into the maths department and basically was yeah. the smartest person. She was, in yeah, there, wasn't she? Yeah. Um. So yeah, I just I thought it was a really good film, and I've noted that I, I love films like this because they always have really good quotes. First of all, based on a true story, I always love films that are like yeah. that. But it has some really powerful quotes in them as well. And one thing I also really like, which is quite a subtle part of the film, but Mary Jackson when she sort of trying to get into this whole white school and she knows she wants to become an engineer but everyone basically is telling her no. There's this one friend she has at work um, I think he's called Dr Zielinski or something and he is a Polish Jew and she's talking about how much she's struggling to become an engineer and move herself forward um, almost thinking it's impossible and he says well I'm a Polish Jew living in America who escaped from 
the Holocaust in Germany, or at least he had family who escaped from that. He said, "I am living the impossible." So you know, if he can, then then so so can yeah. he. And yeah, just moments like that again are very subtle, but we're just why well, I really love this film. I thought it yeah. was fantastic. And a bit that stuck with me was the clip of JFK. I think hmm. say the the quote: "We do these things not because they are easy, but because they are hard." Which I think he was talking in relation to the space program. Yeah, I think so. But that is the message of the film, yeah. isn't it? It's these people that are really breaking down these barriers, not because they're easy, but because they're hard. Yeah. So I th- that was a quote that stuck with me. That was about the space aspect, but was more about these this great accomplishments by these three groundbreaking women. Mm, absolutely. I think that's a good point to end I on. I think that wraps us up. I think that wraps us up. Thanks for listening. And yeah, we'll see you next week.